Happy New Year, DSR listeners! This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkoff, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon, a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you and Happy New Year. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Ruskoff. I'm coming to you from our nation's capital, not too far from our nation's capital, and what was, I think it was once part of our nation's capital, actually, is Rosa Brooks in Alexandria, Virginia. Wasn't Alexandria part of Washington at one point? Part of Alexandria was part of Washington. Not all of it, but there's a, a, a rock that's part of the original cornerstone that's in a strange metal cage right near where I live. And I don't know why the rock has to be in a cage, but it's the rock that marks the original boundary. Oh, it is. So it's near where you lived. It's near where I live. Yeah, well, that's that's fascinating, and I'm sure all of our listeners are interested in that. Joining us from New York City in his actual office, I don't even know people who go to an actual office, so I'm super impressed by this, is Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Washington Post. Max, why do you go to an office? No one goes to an office. Same reason I drink martinis and old fashions, David. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a retro kind of guy. Retro, yeah, no, you're retro. That makes you yeah. cool, though, Max. That's retro is cool. Everybody knows that. Yeah, actually, doesn't your Twitter avatar have like a little fedora too? I mean, it does. Yeah. No, you're yeah, you're kind of a Rat Pack guy, aren't you? Me, me, and Sammy, yeah, we're hanging out. Yeah. No, I could just, I could just see that. So, you know, obviously, everybody knows this podcast for the past six years and nine years, almost eight years, if you count one that preceded it, we talk about what's going on in the world, the really important issues. Rosa brought one up just before we came on here. You know, you just came back from Jamaica with a serious question on your mind. What's the question? Max will answer it for you. The question is, what is wrong with the state of international norms that allows some countries to drive on the wrong side of the road? They just do it to aggravate Americans. That's the only reason. It's the only reason I can think of, frankly. Yeah, this, this anti-Americanism has got to go. I think there needs to be a Security Council resolution, and I think we need to address this immediately, because driving in Jamaica took a decade off my life. It's very scary, particularly if you have a manual transmission. And the roads suck, and the drivers are nuts. I've actually come to sort of enjoy driving in the UK, but maybe that's like my <laughs> inherent masochism. It was like driving in Maryland. That's all I have to say. The, the drivers in Jamaica were as insane as the Maryland. 
drivers. Okay, that's that's just crazy talk. <laughs> the drivers in Virginia are much worse. No, the last time this I is drove science. This is science, David. Science did a survey and science found that Maryland drivers are the worst. All right. If we're going to talk about traffic, I have to mention the fact that I was just in Jakarta, which has to have the world's worst traffic jams. I mean, it was I grew up in L.A. and I'd never seen anything like it. It was just have, off have the you, charts. Have you been to Bangkok? I have. Yeah, because I, I stopped. I stopped going to Bangkok because it was just like everything was, you know, it's like in Washington, everybody goes, everything's 20 minutes away. In Bangkok, everything's four hours away. Yeah, pretty much Jakarta, Lagos. too. That's pretty yeah. bad. Lagos, too, for traffic. But yeah, Jakarta's up there. Is Lagos bad? Lagos have you been bad. in Lagos? I have been in Lagos several times. And I would like to, I, those, of, those of our listeners who are, you know, older than 35 or so will remember that for many, many years, really for at least a decade, there were signs up in U.S. airports saying that the international airport in Lagos, Nigeria, had been did not satisfy our security requirements. And one time I was transiting through Lagos and my onward flight was canceled and I did not have a Nigerian visa. And so I was facing like three days sleeping in the Lagos airport. And the Nigerian immigration guys said, don't worry, just give us your passport and we will make your reservation at the Sheraton. And of course I thought, well, I'm never going to see my passport again, or at any rate, I'm going to only see my passport again with a very hefty bribe. But off I went to the Sheraton, having surrendered my passport. And three days later, I came back and they said, oh, hello, we hope you had a good three days. Here's your passport. And that was that. It was amazing. They were, I, it was, they're incredibly friendly. I, I have nothing but good things to say for the Lagos International Airport and the people who work there. Now, I once had a trip to Liberia, which was a very nice place, and I liked all the people I met there. But they, at the time, were going through a period where they were unable to print paper money. So all people had was coins, and they would carry around these big bags of coins. And when I got to the airport, I had been with government officials. They said, please give us your bag of coins. They were like, <laughs> they were like you can't possibly think you'll use these in any other place. And so every time they would, they would it to the take somebody to the airport, it was like, you know, give us, give us the bag of <laughs> bag of coins. Do you have any stories you want to share with us, Max? Like bad travel experiences, or you know, no, I just, I just shared my nightmare of sitting in Jakarta traffic for an hour every night to go out to dinner. So that's that's my most recent. And also, actually, I was out, went to this tiny little Indonesian island called Moyo. That's practically off the map and there was like a storm raging and so like the the boat from the hotel that we were supposed to take refused to take us so we had to take like this cargo boat where there were no seats and it was like bucking wildly in the seas and we really thought this was going to be our last trip but somehow we made it wow i don't know that i would have done that um but you're a courageous guy so so or very bad judgment one of those well, so you've been writing a lot about islands in the Pacific. I'm now starting to understand this. A recent column of yours was about a somewhat larger island from which we get almost all of our semiconductors, and that's Taiwan. You talk a little bit about what you wrote and why. Well, the why actually is because I happen to be transiting through Taiwan to and from Indonesia. And I thought, well, I might as well take advantage of this opportunity and extended my stay in Taiwan by a few days and spent some time interviewing various 
current and former government officials to try to get a read on the state of Taiwanese defenses because obviously Xi Jinping and China have been more threatening than, than usual in recent years. And also because, you know, the invasion of Ukraine has really been sort of a wake-up call up until, you know, pretty recently it was possible to live in denial and to say, you know, uh, yeah, Taiwan is under threat, but, you know, this is the modern world. This is the 21st century. Countries don't just invade one another. And I think, you know, we've seen with Putin and Russia, yeah, they actually do invade other countries. This is a real thing. I mean, a lot of people, I think, especially in Taiwanese leadership, have really been awakening to the threat. I think a lot of ordinary Taiwanese are still in denial if you read the public opinion polls. But they're now trying to bolster their defenses after a long period of neglect. They're raising defense spending. They've extended conscription from four months to a year. And they're trying to buy a lot of high-tech U.S. equipment, including stuff like HIMARS and Javelins and Stingers that are all on back order because of of Ukraine. They're really trying to reorient their military, in fact, from a very conventional force centered on tanks and ships and, and fighter aircraft to a more asymmetric force that would do some of the things that the Ukrainians have done using drones and missiles and so forth to try to stymie a Chinese invasion. But it's it's a massive project and it's going to take years to pay off. And in the meantime, China is in the midst of a rapid military buildup and, and, and the CIA estimates that Xi Jinping wants the ability to invade Taiwan by 2027. Now, whether he's actually going to do it or not, nobody knows. But he certainly wants that ability in place uh, within five years or four years now. So it's, you know, it's it's a very dangerous situation, one that could potentially draw the United States into, into a, a big, big war that we don't want to get in the middle of, but that may be coming our way. Yeah, well, I think that's a war nobody wants to get in the middle of, because if we do destroy all the productive capacity of semiconductors on the planet, we're all going to be living in tents, you know, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be very hard for the global economy. Uh, And of course, one of the problems that Taiwan recognizes it faces that, for example, Ukraine doesn't, is there's no railroads to the next country over. Right. It's a huge problem. Yeah, it won't be that easy to resupply Taiwan in a war as it is with Ukraine. And Taiwan desperately needs, among other things, and not only needs to revamp its military. It also needs to stockpile energy, food, ammunition, medicine, everything it needs to withstand a siege. And one of the I was actually one of the things that surprised me, and I think one of the one of the crazier things that's going on right now is they only have 10 days of supplies of natural gas, which they need to power their electricity. And yet the DPP, which is the ruling party, is phasing out all of their nuclear plants. This is just makes no sense. This is crazy. They need to be expanding their nuclear power industry instead of shutting it down. So there's a lot of challenges for Taiwan in in the years ahead. Yeah. And that's also a lesson of Ukraine that was learned by Germany, right? Germany shut down their nuclear power plants after Fukushima. Had they not done so, they could have compensated for not receiving Russian gas. Um, But they were unable to do that. Rosa, among the many, many many, many bad ideas that has been presented by Kevin McCarthy in just his first couple of days as Speaker of the House, or 
given the narrowness of his victory, as I like to refer to him, squeaker of the house, is that he wants to go to Taiwan. And Speakers love to go to Taiwan. It's the Yeah, they go, do. Apparently. And the last time it caused a real ruction. And of course, the Chinese can't do less if McCarthy goes. They they, they have to do at least whatever they did with under under uh, Actually, the, if the, I were the Chinese, I would say if McCarthy goes to just ignore him, that would really piss him off. They'd completely ignore it. Because he's a squeaker. Who cares if the squeaker goes to Taiwan? Speaker, maybe. Squeaker, no. But the squeaker of the house, no, not not at all. What do you think? You know, I mean, it, this could happen this year. And yeah. it looks like Xi Jinping doesn't really want to invade Taiwan no. this year. I so think th- that, seems, that seems pretty clear. Um, I, I mean, I don't think Nancy Pelosi should have gone to Taiwan. Uh, I certainly don't think Kevin McCarthy should go to Taiwan. I, I, I think that in a, at a moment that is particularly volatile to start with, that doing things that are essentially unnecessary thumbing of the nose just seems like a dumb idea. I don't think China is looking for a reason to start some sort of conflict. But the biggest, I think, biggest fear, you know, for me and for, for most people is, is not that China's going to say, hey, we can't wait to have an excuse to go invade Taiwan or start lobbing missiles at Taiwan, but rather that something will happen, you know, something inadvertent will happen that will put them into a corner where they feel like they can only save face by doing that. And uh, it's interesting, just yesterday, there were several news stories about a uh, war gaming that CSIS, the Center for Security and International Studies, did on U.S.-China conflict over Taiwan. And what they came out with, and, you know, war games are just war games, obviously, they don't necessarily predict the future, but they ran various versions of it over and over and over again. And their conclusion was that if China were to invade Taiwan, they would probably fail to hold on to it. Not definitely, but probably. But the cost to Taiwan, the cost to the US, the cost to China, arguably the cost to other states such as Japan, would just be astronomically high in terms both of human lives and in terms of destroyed and damaged property, in terms of destroyed and damaged planes, ships, you name it. You know, they would just be astonishingly costly and would end in a situation where they would probably, the Chinese would be no better off, in fact, and everybody would be worse off. And I don't, I don't think the Chinese are dumb. You know, they're quite capable of doing their own war games. My guess is that they're concluding something similar that it's not impossible that they could be successful, but that it's not super likely, and that even if they are successful, it would be at a, at a truly enormous price. So I think the job of the United States right now and the job of all sane leaders, including EU representatives, et cetera, is to just try to lower the temperature, to try to reduce the likelihood that something happens that essentially makes the Chinese feel forced to act uh, when they don't particularly want to. Uh, and therefore, Kevin, my Kevin, as we call him, stay home. I didn't know that you had that much influence with him, Rosa. Max, I, I, I'm interested in in your reaction to this idea of this war game. And I just want to throw something in there before you consider it. And that is, it sounds to me like you could only reach that conclusion if you assumed 
really vigorous support from the U.S. and allies for the Taiwanese, which seems to me to be highly unlikely, and that we would probably do something more like Ukraine, which would be much harder to do with Taiwan. But maybe I'm wrong here. What do you, what do you think of all this? No, I think that is the that is the the big question mark. I mean, we do have a policy of strategic ambiguity, and therefore nobody can figure out what we would actually do in the event of a war. And and, and the confusion is only heightened because you've had President Biden repeatedly say that he would commit U.S. troops to defend Taiwan, and then every time he says that, the White House walks it back and says, "No, that's not actually our policy." So nobody really knows, and. It, and the reality is anything that any president says right now doesn't mean that much because ultimately it's going to be dependent on whoever is in office when that horrible contingency occurs. If it occurs, that president will have to make that terrible decision. And I honestly, and I think a lot of it will depend on the circumstances and it's just very hard to predict. But, you know, I, I do think that there is some wishful thinking on the part of a lot of people in Taiwan who think like, oh, if the balloon goes up, the U.S. will show up to bail us out. And I think, David, you're right to say that it's not necessarily the case, because the reality any American president would have to look at is you, you can run your war games, but the reality is war in on the ground, in the air, at sea, often diverges pretty radically from the way you imagine it ahead of time. And of course, there's a certain air of unreality about these war games with China, because they all assume that the United States can go to war against China and not have it become a nuclear conflict. But there, we, we don't have any evidence that that would, in fact, be the case, because you have not had examples of nuclear-armed states fighting one another. And this, this is the kind of thing that could very easily escalate out of control, because the war games show that for China, there is a massive, if, if there's a conflict with the U.S., their incentive is to hit U.S. bases in places like Guam and Japan and even Hawaii, shades of the Japanese in World War II to try to qu cripple our ability to operate. In turn, the U.S. incentive is to hit Chinese bases on the mainland because we would be at a major disadvantage if we're fighting Chinese warships and aircraft and missiles in the Taiwan Strait without the ability to basically take out their airfields and ports, which is what we would need to do to actually win the war. And if we're attacking the Chinese mainland, if they're attacking U.S. bases in Guam and, and Japan, I mean, the risk of World War III is going up all the time. So this is a incredibly dangerous scenario, and we just don't know what an American president would do. But I think the way we avoid this dangerous scenario is to increase our deterrence. That means the U.S. needs to build up our forces in the Pacific, but we also need to help the Taiwanese. And that's ultimately the first line of defense. And instead of, you know, gestures like Kevin McCarthy going to Taiwan and kind of poking the dragon in the eye and seeing what happens, that's not going to accomplish anything. What we need to be doing is to making a greater effort to try to provide the weapons that Taiwan needs and also the training that they need. We need to be doing more to train the Taiwanese forces, work on interoperability with U.S. forces, work on intelligence sharing, all this stuff that would actually enhance their defense capabilities in the hope that, as Rosa says, the Chinese are going to be rational and take a look at that and say, you know, we're not going to be able to win this. But at the end of the day, we just don't know, because if Vladimir Putin were being rational, he wouldn't have invaded Ukraine because it was obvious to any analyst that he did not have sufficient troops to achieve the objectives that he was aiming for. But when you have basically a one-man dictatorship, that dictator 
can get bad advice, can get stupid ideas in his head and do something extremely dangerous. And unfortunately, the, the danger now with China is that, like Russia, they are increasingly a one-man dictatorship where we're really depending on the good sense and self-restraint of this absolute dictator not to launch this horrible war. And I hope he doesn't, but we just we just don't know what he's going to do. That being said, it's probably not such a bad thing. Sorry, just one quick at, at addendum there. It's probably not such a bad thing that China has been watching what has been happening in Ukraine, right? I mean, if you wanted an object lesson in the perils of thinking, oh, heck, let's just let's just go and take it. Nobody will really notice or care. It will be, a, you know, it'll be a cakewalk. We've just seen an object lesson in why that thinking is almost always deeply misguided. And that, and that may be helpful in this situation. But having said that, if they watched Ukraine, one of the messages they, they may have gotten is the United States tends to react slowly, tends not to anticipate problems, and that in the case of a conflict over Taiwan, that may not be an option. But another thing that makes me skeptical of war games like this is that I had a conversation with a senior U.S. official who said that when the Chinese have been training for this recently, some of the time it's involved the Russians. And the idea that, you know, the attack on Taiwan, should it ever occur, would be a Chinese-Russian venture. And if we are reluctant to escalate in Ukraine because we don't want to cause a nuclear war, it seems to me that we would be even more reluctant to escalate right, China and Russia acting together towards a common goal. What do you think, Rosa? <laughs> well, okay. I do think that the Chinese have done everything within their power to signal that they think any use of nuclear weapons is a horrible idea, including what's really a fairly open rebuff of Putin on that. And again, as Max said, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine reminds us that you can't count on world leaders to be sane. So, you know, I'm not totally reassured by sane statements because you never know when the next bout of not so insane, not so sane behavior will set in. But but I if we assume and, and I kind of do that China, China absolutely gets how horrifically awful for everybody concerned any nuclear weapons use would be, if we assume that. Then I think China is also looking at the Russian military's performance in Ukraine. So, number one, I'm sure they're thinking, hell no, we don't want to invade any country with those bozos. And number two, if they for some reason decide that they want to work with those bozos, that greatly increases the likelihood of a failed military action. Yeah, I don't think anybody's looking at the Russians as being like these yeah. invincible warriors that you're going to win if they're on your side. Yeah. No question. But on the other hand, if having the Russians involved makes people less inclined to escalate beyond a certain point, they have some value despite their shortcomings. This is the point where we take a brief break in the podcast, and we say thanks to all of you in the general public for joining us, and we encourage you to become a member because then you would get to listen to the whole podcast. And I got to tell you, what we're about to talk about is really super interesting, and I'm sorry you're going to miss it if you're not a member. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on Membership. It's like five bucks a month. It's not really a big deal. And, uh, you know, it's like a latte, right? And it's worth more than a latte to get all this content every week. And there's more and more content, by the way. We've, we're launching some new content this week, and there will be more each and every week. So 
That's our advice. Go become a member so you can listen to the rest. Until then, bye-bye unless you're a member.